Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jim Mayer, your host at the Manufacturing Culture Podcast, where we dig into the exciting world of manufacturing and look at it from every angle you can imagine. Today, we are in for a, a ride so epic, you'll wish you'd brought your seatbelt. We're going to jazz up your world, sail through some transformational stories, and bike along the scenic route of innovation and reimagination. Our guest today is someone who doesn't just imagine the future, he's creating it. He's a leader, a visionary, and a change maker. Get ready to welcome the man, the myth, the legend, Doug Berger. Doug is a founder of Industry Reimagined 2030, a nonprofit that aims to transform U.S. manufacturing from a mosaic of efforts into a unified, groundbreaking force capable of bringing about a quantum leap in productivity and competitiveness. A true maestro of manufacturing, he has spent three decades consulting in the manufacturing, mi mining, and forestry industries, weaving magic with the power of culture to produce astounding results. He's passionate about reimagining lean practices, turning them from misunderstood concepts into tools for continuous improvement and high-octane employee engagement. Away from the factory floor and boardrooms, Doug likes to strum the strings of his jazz guitar, catch the wind in his sails, and pump the pedals on his bike. Always up for new experiences and adventures, he recently toured Morocco. What can't this man do? Oh, but we're just scratching the surface here. A guiding light for Ashoka social entrepreneurs, he's actively engaged in revitalizing distressed communities in Appalachia and promoting water security in Mexico. Doug's influence and impact are truly global. So listeners, gear up for a thrilling, mind-expanding ride. Doug Berger is in the house, ready to share his insights and experiences. Buckle up and get ready to be inspired. Let's imagine the world of manufacturing together. Hello, Doug. Welcome to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. How is your day so far? Thanks, Jim. Delighted to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. It's great to connect with you. I've enjoyed the conversations that you and I have had over the last couple of weeks. Um, but as we start this episode, can you share what you were up to these days with the Industry Reimagined 23 nonprofit? And can you illuminate some of the primary objectives and how they intersect with uh, current industry trends? Sure. Happy to. So Industry Reimagine is bringing a fresh perspective to revitalizing U.S. manufacturing. There are thousands of organizations right now <clears throat> concerned with revitalizing U.S. manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And this was true even before COVID and the supply chain issues from COVID and before the geopolitical uh, headwinds in uh, in China manufacturing. So yeah. we have thousands of organizations working to revitalize manufacturing in the United States. And we have a lot of organizations working on the whole matter of skilling people <clears throat> for jobs in manufacturing, yeah. middle income types of jobs. So from a reimagining, from a transformation perspective, this is something I really care about but I didn't want to be one more of the thousand and one <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So the question is, what could what's missing? Yeah. What could be brought to bear that would um, it, uh, make a difference? Because in spite of all this effort, the tide is still going out and U.S. competitiveness is still declining and U.S. manufacturing productivity is still declining. Yeah. So with that big question in mind that I founded, Industry Reimagined, and with um, a couple of key principles in mind, one, t- having the thousands of organizations that are already doing good work operate as much as possible in an environment of collaboration, where now they mostly operate in an environment of isolation. So there are things that you, there, there, there's only so far you can get when you operate in an isolated environment, when you take the walls down and you start to collaborate, a whole new future of possibility shows sure. up. Yeah. The second thing is, is that as a result of these organizations operating in isolation, most of the thinking and action is happening at a very small scale. And so, you know, we have a program here that trains 20 people. We have, you know, a manufacturing facility over here that's, you know, increasing its productivity, but we're not operating at the scale necessary to move the dial at the national level. So Industry Reimagined is advocating for moving the dial and working collaboratively with with people to accomplish that, to establish much bolder objectives that could only be accomplished collaboratively. And, And then there are two action areas that we're at work in. So one a key to revitalizing U.S. manufacturing is productivity and competitiveness. You know, the, what the government's doing these days, it's great. It's leveling the playing field and it's creating incentives in a couple of key uh, areas. Sure. But it's really insufficient to revitalize manufacturing at the level of 200,000 manufacturing organizations in the United States. So we've got two projects. One is a project in lean manufacturing, which has been proven to drive higher levels of productivity uh, and competitiveness uh, through continuous improvement and employee engagement that you pointed to earlier. Mm -hmm. And the other is a project we have in the area of smart manufacturing, which likewise can do the same thing using the appropriate um, tools and technology, you can enable good increases in productivity and uh, competitiveness. So we're creating collaborative environments to have lean manufacturing be more widely adopted and collaborative environments to have smart manufacturing be more widely adopted. So that's that's what Industry Reimagined is up to. Wow. That's that's a lot. I mean, you're you're in essence taking on the world at this point, huh, Doug? That's what I wake up into the morning with, if you will. I call it playing a great game, okay. and uh, you know, it's a great game that that's not winnable. You know, there's no end to playing the game. Yeah, 
It's just continuous. It's yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, so Doug, I, I mean, we're on the manufacturing culture podcast. So, uh, reflecting on your uh, experience across many different industries, how has that changed or informed your perspective on the significance of culture within an organization? Uh, and in that I'm particularly interested in what we've talked about in the idea that culture is driven by results. So talk to us a little bit about that, if you would. Sure. I became interested in culture decades ago. There was a book written called The Naked Ape, where anthropologists were studying uh, animal uh, in their natural uh, setting. Mm -hmm. And describing animal behavior in such a way that they then started to take that same uh, approach and use it to describe human behavior in organizations. And that's where the term <clears throat> culture became really widespread. Interesting. Um, people think of culture, however, <clears throat> when the... Um, when the anthropologists observed things, what they observed was behavior, mm -hmm. you know, how animals actually interacted with one another. Um, when in what we think culture, we've tended to think of culture in general terms, like teamwork or respect for others. So for me, culture is observable. Culture <clears throat> is practices behavior, and particular for human beings, culture is the stories that people tell one another. So mm -hmm. in basketball, for example, teamwork isn't general. In basketball, teamwork is how we pass the ball to one another, how we set up plays. That's where you see teamwork observably. Mm -hmm. you know? And you see how the team talks to one another and encourages one another. That's culture on the court, if you will, as practices, behaviors, and stories. So, like and the same thing is, you know, true in an organization. So now answering the question about culture and organizations and results. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the world of business and we're in the world of business culture conversation on this podcast. Yep. So the fundamental organizing principle for a business is results. Okay. That's, that's not true for government. That's right. not true for NGOs. That's not true for associations and clubs. All right. It is true for business. The fundamental organizing principle is results. If a culture doesn't support results, it can't be sustained. Yep, absolutely. And, and, you know, as Peter Drucker, well-known, has said, culture trumps business model, you know, culture trumps strategy. Yep. So there is no right culture, but if the culture doesn't support results, all right, then the culture won't be sustained or the business itself won't continue to be uh, viable. So sure. again, uh, that's where this notion for me around uh, results is. All right. And 
Um, let me add to that with a story from a particular client that I work with uh, that was a mining company in a small town in central Canada. Okay. And at the outset, the culture in that world was very typical. It was the company was always trying to reduce labor costs and the union was always working to preserve labor. Okay. Operations were planned by engineers and supervisors. The union workforce was expected to show up on time and do what they were told. Sure. That's what you would observe, you know, if you walked around um, the facility. Yep. So the shift. What brought about a culture change was a new mine president came in. And he set a very, very bold objective. And that bold objective was for a significant reduction in costs through an increase in volume. So it was not about reducing costs through layoffs. It was about reducing costs by dramatically increasing volume. And that, that had a real meaningful impact to the community because it meant that the mine would be viable for a lot longer into the future. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. business as usual wasn't going to cut it. You know, off-the-shelf improvement wasn't cut going to cut it. We needed a new way to run the company in order to do that. So what the new culture looked like is, one, all right, union work, unionized workers were included became inclusive to making improvements. Okay. We had the opportunity to identify and implement change. They had the opportunity to organize themselves as many businesses to compete with contractors that were external mini businesses. Ideas that could only come from people working on the front line. Yeah. Evaluated and most were adopted. And the evaluation happened at the lowest level. So, one, you could see that I'm talking about culture in very observable uh, terms. Sure. And then people began to tell new stories about what it was like to work here. And those stories then became self fulfilling for the future. And that enabled what we started with in one particular operational area. People heard the stories. People got interested, you know, started to be a bit contagious. And the net result was a 30 percent reduction in uh, cost structure over a three year period, not through layoffs, but through increased productivity and volume. Wow. So. That's that's a significant uh, re cost reduction. Um, and, and what did that then continue to do to the culture there? You know, first, it proved a certain point. You know, it proved a point that when you engage people, they see opportunities for improvement that somebody else just doesn't see. It's not because they're not working in that. It's a blind spot for them. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so it's kind of like the seven blind men and the elephant Mm -hmm. movement happens. All right. When you've got that, when you've got those multiple points of view. Got it. And each point of view is working on improvements that it can see. It's working on eliminating bottlenecks that it can see. And they're not, um, rather than arguing about, is that a real bottleneck or is that a real area of waste? Yep. So culture became one where it, one could say it, it fits the model of lean manufacturing. It became a culture in which people could continue to identify areas of waste and people could continue to um, innovate um, new opportunities that were, if you will, one person saw and were not in plain sight to everybody else. Sure. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the cumulative sustainability effect. Yeah. And, and so uh, uh, over the course of three years, does culture change have to be a gradual process um, or, or can can that be accelerated? Uh, talk to us about timeline and, and culture change and, and maybe uh, how organizations can effectively evolve their culture uh, to yield more productive outcomes. Yeah. The two biggest mistakes that companies, three, there are three big mistakes that companies make and kind of why culture change has um, a bad rap. One is that they think changing organization structure changes culture. It mm -hmm. doesn't. <clears throat> the second thing is that um, culture change, the executives look at it and culture change applies to the organization, not to the executive suite. Got it. And the third thing is they treat culture change uh, is as if it's a rising sea level that affects everything all at once. And it doesn't work that way. So when you look at how culture change really works, yeah. the, it's a social phenomenon. Yeah. You all, and again, I'm, I say it's driven by results. So how it works is, you go after results in a given area or that can't be accomplished business as usual. So it requires you innovate and do things differently. So that then you ask the question, I'm going to go after these results. Who are the people I should be involving to go after these results? That identifies a group of people. Then you say, what new tools and methods, if any, do I need to give them uh, in skillfulness and give them in discretion so that they can do things differently? Uh -huh. And then results happen, work life improves, new stories get told. And those stories then become the viral agent that one person tells a story to how things are different and things are getting better. To, they tell it to people in their social network in the company. Yeah. So from the perspective of an individual or a work group, culture change can happen in a matter of months. 
from the perspective of the business as a whole, it could take years for that to ripple out and affect all the individuals within the culture, within the company organization. Got it. Got it. That makes total sense. Um, you spoke about the connection of lean to culture in an answer just a few moments ago. And, and lean is, is a concept that is vague, misunderstood, as I said earlier, and, and rather uh, confusing, I guess, to, to some. So from your standpoint, how can we uh, clarify and demystify and reimagine the concepts of lean to usher in that new era of manufacturing. Great. I love the, that you use the term reimagine because that's what we actually call our lean initiative, reimagine lean. Mm. Um, so rather than say lean is misunderstood, let's just say that lean has a lot of understandings. And I agree that in many cases, um, people's understanding is very um, ambiguous. They, sure. you know, so let's include, there's a lot of understandings and there's ambigu ambiguity in what people understand lean to be. Mm -hmm. So first, part of that comes about as a function of lean has its own terminology. Same as engineering does, same as finance does, same as basketball does, mm -hmm. same as the mechanic who works on your car does. They have a terminology that they use to talk about, if you will, the game they're in. Sure. And if you don't understand, if you're not in the game, you don't understand the terminology. So lean terminology is great for one lean practitioner talking to another lean practitioner. And it's a shorthand by which they can say, you know, hey, let's do this. And everybody knows what this is. If you're not in the game, you don't know what they're talking about. Mm. So one of the areas that we've identified is lean, in many cases, needs to talk in much more, if you will, descriptive terms so that people who are not familiar with the terminology of lean can nonetheless understand what it is people are talking about. The second thing is that we, we have a particular orientation on lean. So there's lean like Lean Six Sigma, where people think of lean in that regard as just in time. We're going to lean out our inventory, we're going to have this pull, and that's what lean is. And that's an aspect, but the big, bigger, more powerful uh, definition of lean, in my view, is that lean is about continuous improvement through employee engagement. Okay. And, and we're giving employees at all levels, we're giving employees at all levels all right, the methods and skills for continuous improvement and the common language to use to talk about continuous improvement. So there, in that regard, then, a Six Sigma project, that's a tool. Just in time, that's a tool. 
you know, there are a lot of tools. And so I think it's important that lean have a context. And the context that I advocate is that it's continuous improvement through employee uh, engagement. So, uh, that's uh, unbelievably interesting to me, Doug. How, how do we scale that uh, commonality? I mean, how, how is this something that we can take to other individuals in the industry um, and, and create this more simplistic language and, and terminology so it might be understood by more uh, and uh, people would then maybe utilize those tools a little bit more often? You know, you can't see me, but I have a big smile on my face. <laughs> All right. So we had, we formed a year ago, we formed this uh, collaborative effort, you know, given that one of my organizing principles is unprecedented collaboration. Right. Collaborative effort of about 20 thought leaders and practitioners in lean. And we identified some things in just the area that you raised. Now we completed that first phase of work and we're actually about to uh, re-enlist a whole new cadre of people who want to do phase two. And mm -hmm. phase two is really about how do we get these actionable insights out much more widely, much, much more uh, broadly to the manufacturing community. So I don't want to answer your question directly. I want to say that's the big question that we're putting in front of people for um, reimagine what phase two would be. Got it. <clears throat> Wonderful. So, Doug, throughout your career and throughout the conversations we've had, uh, you've advocated for leaders, myself included, to step outside of their comfort zone. So... <clears throat> Based on your experiences, what what is the benefit to leaders embracing this mindset of challenging the status quo and, and stepping out of their comfort zone? Yeah, great. So, um, you know, Carol Dweck from Stanford wrote a book called The Growth Mindset. Yep. Uh, another colleague of mine, Andrea Cates, wrote a book called Getting to Next that points to the kind of mindset that you have all right, around how you live your life. Mm -hmm. You know, um, do you live your life kind of in a status quo pattern or do you live your life in a way that's more expansive, uh, inclusive, uh, adventurous, let's say, okay? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, some people... Um, have that kind of growth mindset and some people don't, you know? Yeah. And however, a lot of people who don't have it would like to have it because they see something comes of having that mindset. You know, they see that there are people that were overweight who really took on the challenge of not only getting in good, not only losing weight, but running a marathon. Sure. Totally outside of any kind of frame of reference, if you will. Mm -hmm. So what, what happens when you take on an area of life and you go, again, I want to accomplish something remarkable for me, remarkable for me. So again, you can keep hearing how 
this idea of results accomplishment for me is a driving force. Yeah. Not, not in the sense of being a type A personality, because um, I actually am not a type A personality, <laughs> all right? But our driving force in the sense of a motivational, intentional force. So if you look and you go, what comes from living life in that kind of way? What comes from living life that way is a whole new level of aliveness, a whole new level of self-expression, of personal fulfillment. And when you're around people who are like that, it's contagious. So for leaders that are stepping outside their comfort zone, one, there's results. Two, there's this whole new quality of life that's available to them. And three, all right, it, it becomes this very, uh, an energy field that starts to bring uh, new possibilities for aliveness, self-expression, fulfillment um, to people you come into contact with. Wow. Wow. Uh, so I, I love that. Um, and in our sector and manufacturing, uh, I mean, you've heard it as probably more times than I have. Uh, when you ask the question why something's done a certain way and you hear that answer, well, that's the way it's always been done, right? And and so bringing that back to, to manufacturing uh, or your answer back to manufacturing, that really just... Uh, it's it's all about the results, but it's about having that different mindset and, and challenging that status quo. Am I hearing you right? Yeah, yeah. The results, it, the results are the driving force. Yeah. Or as opposed to the results are the whole reason. You know, the end in it's like the end justifies the means. Mm -hmm. no, I'm thinking of it more like the end is the stimulus for creating new means. Wow. I like and it. New means actually allow for new results that you couldn't have gotten in the old way. Got it. So, so Doug, let, oh, go a, ahead. It's a virtuous cycle as opposed to a vicious circle. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, it, you you have some workshops that you uh, do in the manufacturing sector that that really brings leaders uh, a breakthrough uh, type of skill set. Um, can you explain that to us a little bit? And and how do you enable the participants of those workshops to develop those skills? Great, wonderful. So um, this is where that notion of reimagining comes in. Sure. All right. That there are there are th there are aspects of life that people kind of when they let their imagination roam, they they go, I'd really like to be in that world. Yeah. But they don't act to be in that world. Mm -hmm. So there's this disconnect between a world I can really imagine and a world I take action in to get to. So breakthrough thinking is really about, one, allowing your imagination, and two, then charting pathways that are pathways that put you on a trajectory 
to a world you imagine rather than the world you've already, the world you've always had, if you will. Sure. So that's one aspect of it. Then you go, what holds people back? What holds people back is that there are hidden bottlenecks that people just don't see for themselves. And so they bump up against something. Yeah. They, they, they may not even realize you bump up against it. All right. You're just following the natural flow of the river, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the river takes you however it takes you, but it's not taking you where you want to go. So in breakthrough thinking, one when the river is not taking you in the direction you want to go, you start to become alert to what is going on in the background that's hidden from me that is getting in the way of achieving the result that I want to achieve. And so, go on. Uh, I, I was just going to ask a clarifying question. So it sounds like it's almost a, a root cause analysis for your mindset, for your personal results. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Here's, here's a, a different way of thinking about it. Sure. When we're training people in lean principles of con- in continuous improvement, one of the things that people get trained in is lots of forms of waste. That waste is not just material on the shop floor, if you will, in the basket, all right? That waste could be wasted time, wasted energy, wasted motion. Waste has lots of forms. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, you're not aware of all these forms of waste. As you start to become aware of it, you start to see opportunities everywhere because you can see waste all over the place. Yeah. Breakthrough thinking is exactly like that. You are be, start out and you're not aware of how you're limiting yourself. But then there are areas where there are like identifying waste. There are areas where you can start to become alert to, oh, that's a stopping point for me. Oh, that's another stopping point for me. For example, um, um, I was talking with somebody the other day for me, to benefit me, all right, about an area where I stopped. And she said, well, you know, when you get stopped, why don't you just take a moment and write down for yourself everything that's going on that's in your mind that's taking up space so that rather than taking action, you're running a kind of, you know, movie reel internally about yourself. Yeah. And writing it down shifted my view. Interesting. So instead of it being me, it became, if you will, thoughts and images on a piece of paper. And that shifted my entire perspective. And naturally, I found myself in action in a way that I wouldn't have been in action previously. So that's one of those tools that people can learn. It's a skill that's a learnable skill. And then, you know, you try something. And then, you you know, you go, I don't know what will happen, but I'll try it. And what's the risk? You know, what's the downside if it doesn't turn out? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, let's let's shift gears here a little bit uh, into uh, talking a little bit about the intersection of technology and culture. Uh, the, it, uh-huh. This is a manufacturing industry, and and technology is is coming at us faster than a lot of people can absorb it. So how does, in, in your view, how does technology shape culture? And, and conversely, how can culture truly optimize the use of technology? Great. So how does technology shape culture? Well, you know, let's take a look at the iPhone. Mm-hmm. The iPhone, we didn't, we didn't train people to use the iPhone. We didn't, tr- you know, people started using the iPhone. They started seeing things the iPhone can do and their behavior changed. Yeah. Google came out and did Google search. Amazon came out and did online buying. So, you know, you try it and all of a sudden you go, that works better. That was interesting. That was more fulfilling. I'm going to do more of that. So, you know, now, now, there's a, also the flip side of that, which is where it can be dysfunctionally habit-forming. You know, so uh-huh. people get addicted to social media, you know, and, and um, you know, TikTok and things like that. So technology can encourage certain behaviors because it fulfills on a, a desire that people have and it makes life easier or more fulfilling or more social or something like that. You know, so it has a positive effect on your life. So that's how technology can change a culture without you ever explicitly saying, I'm going to change culture. Interesting. You know, and then, you know, how does culture affect technology is if you choose technology that is, how do I want to say this? If you choose technology that's consistent with the kind of world environment, the kind of environment, culture um, that you want to be living in, you know? So, um, in that regard, one makes choices about technology. Yeah. So um, do I want to, you know, if I'm a manufacturing facility, do I want to choose a technology that's going to be a lights out, hands off technology and displace workers? Or do I want to choose a technology that is requires a higher level of skill I want to train my people to be more skillful. I want to keep them employed. You know, what's your values? And then you choose the technology that's supportive of your values. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I love it. You're you're kind of blowing my mind uh, here today, Doug. Uh, it's a lot of great information. So as we look to the future uh, of manufacturing and we look to... Uh, the year 2030, because that's IR 2030. Uh, what challenges and opportunities do you see coming in the manufacturing industry? And and how can 
culture be an antidote or a solution to some of those issues? Well, from a technology point of view, one of the things right now that's receiving a whole lot of attention is this whole area of generative uh, artificial intelligence, like, yeah. you know, chat, GPT. Yep. You know, and the, you know, that people are on the one hand scared to death of it because it's going to displace a lot of creative efforts that people have really treated as very kind of personal to who they are and the work they do. Uh, and on the other hand, it could be used as an enabler of your creative efforts because in many cases, it can give you a jump start on something. So let's say you want to be a writer, but you don't know really how to start. You can put something into, you know, chat GPT that'll give you a starting point. You go, wow, now I can take this and run with it. Yep. So, you know, technology, it, it's how people use it. It's not the thing itself. And we've always known that um, about technology. Yep. So I think what's really important here is that we have a national narrative about the importance of manufacturing to our workforce, our society, our families. So manufacturing, you know, 30 years ago was a gateway to the middle class. Yep. And then we offshored it and we wiped out a section of the middle class. We hollowed out a lot of communities. So if we say to ourselves as a narrative that manufacturing is really supportive of uh, creating middle class, middle income uh, opportunities for people that don't require a college degree, that manufacturing is really central to having vital communities, then we will make choices about manufacturing that are supportive of that view. Sure. If we look at it and go, it's all about saving money and driving down costs, all right, we'll continue to go down that road. So as an advocate for Industry Reimagine, we're really an advocate that says, let's create a future of vibrant opportunity, not just opportunity for profitability, but opportunity for workers and, and families and communities and society. And let's make choices that are consistent with the world of opportunity. Sure. So um, you talk about workforce development, Doug, and, and that next generation uh, that's stepping up and stepping into the, the manufacturing sector. And, and, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are doing a lot of work to um, make manufacturing cool again, uh, if you will. Um, <clears throat> How can those young people or that next generation uh, contribute to this this vision of the future that you have? What you, there's young people in school, and then there's young people entering the workforce. Sure. So if first for people to young people to become aware that they're really that manufacturing really is a uh, gateway to 
a good middle income life. And um, we've, because of the decline of manufacturing over the last 25 years, you know, there's a kind of implicit mindset of man manufacturing's in inevitable decline. Why would I want to be there? And then, you know, the young people are excited about video games and TikTok and all those kinds of things, you know. Yeah. So, um, one, as people think about their future, then they, you know, and go, I'm preparing myself for my future. So that's not something that educators are good at doing. They don't prepare people for their future. So what can the what can the young person do is they can actually start to think in terms of I'm preparing myself for my future. What's the future I'm preparing myself for? Yeah. And well, and start to imagine themselves in different futures and see what you know what futures really start to appeal to them. You know, so we see that with young people that imagine themselves as a future in sports or young people that imagine themselves as a future uh, in the performing arts. You know, they work hard to prepare themselves for that future. Yeah. When it comes to a future in business, people don't work necessarily to prepare themselves for that kind of future. And so prepare yourself for, Interesting. you know, learn about robotics, learn about mechanics, you know, find projects that you can work on, you know, but take on this, you know, we were talking about that growth mindset. Yeah. Take, take on a mindset. I'm preparing myself for my future and then start to imagine futures that you're going to prepare yourself for. This is not an area of expertise for me. So I'm kind of giving you, if you will, what a dad, what I would say <laughs> said to my children, okay, is, yeah. you know, you're going to go to college, great, have a great time in college. And what's the future you're preparing yourself for when you leave college? Sure. And do I bo have both. Live your life, have a great life, and prepare yourself for the future. Wonderful. So as you're wrapping up, giving advice uh, to the young people um, and, and we're wrapping up our conversation here, what's one key insight or, or the message that you want our listeners to remember and, and really be able to apply in their own context or, or their own business? Well, there are two things that come to mind. All right. And, and one is in this area of the what's next or growth mindset is that the future isn't something that happens to you. The future is something that you're the author of. So be the author of your future. I like it. Um, I like it a lot. You know, and then, you know, from a cultural point of view, that's where, you know, collaboratively, collaboratively, we can look and at the future at our futures that we individually want and go, what's a future we want to build that is an enabler of the future for all of us, if you will, you know? Yeah. And so, 
you know, in that regard, it, you know, leaders establish kind of these bold outcomes, these bold views of the future, and then allow people, all right, the room to find their own behaviors and practices and skills in support of that future. Interesting. I like it. I like it, Doug. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, we appreciate your insight, your stories. Um, it's been a, an absolute inspiring uh, journey. Thank you very much, Doug, for being on. You're most welcome. My pleasure. Wow. What an electrifying ride we've just had, folks. This episode was nothing short of a whirlwind of insights, stories, and ideas that could shape the very future of manufacturing. A huge thank you to our esteemed guest, Doug Berger, who joined us today to not only share his visions, but to ignite our own imaginations. We dove into the heart of Industry Reimagined 2030 and how Doug is stitching together a tapestry of efforts into a powerful force ready to revolutionize American manufacturing. And as we look ahead to 2030, Doug painted a picture of the challenges and opportunities that lay on the horizon. A robust culture is not just a buffer against challenges, but a powerful instrument to seize opportunities. To our valued listeners, if you're as, an, as inspired as I am right now, make sure to share this episode with friends, families, colleagues, your boss, Let's get everyone on this roller coaster of innovation. Don't forget to rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to it on. Your feedback helps us bring more amazing guests and topics to the Manufacturing Culture Podcast. Please, please, please make sure to visit our website, manufacturingculturepodcast.com for more episodes, some exclusive content, and other resources. And before we sign off, I want to take a moment to, to think how you can take what Doug shared today and apply it in your own context. Remember, the future isn't just something that happens. It's something we make. Have a great day and keep making things.